that's what I'm made to do. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm going to play baseball during the summer and take a few months off and get training, get ready for next year. And that's, and I got in that mode and I didn't want to give it up. Welcome into another episode of Baseball America's interview series from Phenom to the Farm, where we're talking to former professional baseball players to reminisce about their playing days and what they learned on the journey from amateur ball to the professional ranks. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Today we are joined by Marcus Nidefer. Unless you were deep into SEC baseball in the late 2000s, he might be a little unfamiliar to you, so I'm going to do a little more background than usual, because this is one of my favorite conversations I've had on this podcast. Marcus was a catcher at Kentucky entering college baseball as a small scholarship guy who redshirted, then didn't see much field as a freshman, and then blossomed into a three-year starter in the SEC and a catalyst of those Kentucky teams from that era. Post-Kentucky, Marcus went undrafted, caught on with the Astros as an undrafted free agent, spent a year with the organization, got released, caught on with the Angels for a season before getting released again in spring training 2012. That's where Marcus's story gets really interesting to me. He packed up and headed to Indie Ball, hoping to get another chance at climbing to the big leagues through Affiliated Ball. Not to spoil things, but that call to return to Affiliated never came, but Marcus spent the next seven years catching an Indie Ball, all the way into his 30s. We talked about playing in the SEC, facing guys like David Price and Drew Pomeranz every weekend, as well as playing in the Cape. We also talked about the difficulty of being an undrafted free agent and get into a lot of great indie ball talk. I had to know what makes a guy continue to get behind the plate for seven years in indie ball, and Marcus filled me in and proved to be a really great ambassador for some of the things that make indie ball really special. Episodes of From Phenom to the Farm drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoy this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and go check out past interviews. And if you haven't yet, leave a five star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure you subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. Since our last episode, pitchers and catchers have reported college baseball season has started. It is full swing at BaseballAmerica.com, so make sure you're subscribed. For future guest info of this podcast, you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Banduho. But for now, let's talk to Marcus Nidefer. All right, joining in for today's episode from Phenom to the Farm, he is a former catcher for Kentucky and in the Angels and Astros system and longtime catcher for the Rockland Boulders, Marcus Nidefer. Marcus, thanks so much for joining from Phenom to the Farm. Yeah, I appreciate it, Kyle. Thanks for calling. Of course, and I, I appreciate you uh, doing all the hard work you did to, to get us connected. We've had a little bit of audio trouble uh, starting out, but been looking forward to this. I uh, want to jump right into it. Um, you're with, with your upbringing, uh, in, uh, up in Tennessee, you grew up in a, a baseball family. Were you always a baseball only guy as you got into high school? No, I actually, uh, played a lot of football and that was actually what I thought I was going to play after high school. And, um, things just kind of transpired the other way and, uh, played, played baseball instead of football in college. So, um, my actual dream was to play college football and got a couple offers from some smaller schools. And, uh, uh, when Kentucky came in, I, I had to, I had to kind of jump on that and leave, uh, leave football behind. So that's kind of how that went. So for you, it was more the, the, the quality of school versus the, the sport as far as, as far as why you chose your college, what you did. Yeah, and and uh, I, I kind of think I got kind of lucky on that one, and I, I knew it was a, a risk for me to even see the see the playing field at, at Kentucky. But 
once you once you go on an SEC campus and you just walk around and see, it just uh, it makes it pretty easy decision. So, and you went to Kentucky as a catcher. How how when did you start catching? How as a kid did they talk you into uh, throw on all this gear and uh, <laughs> and take a bunch of shots all game? <laughs> Yeah, I was kind of uh, default to to going behind the plate. So my brother played uh, college baseball and bounced around to a couple different schools, and he coached our AAU team, and we really didn't even have a catcher. So um, I started out um, as as the AAU catcher on our travel team, and I, I remember when I first got back there, I didn't even know how to block block a baseball. I was just picking everything like a first baseman. And uh, that's when my brother started working with with me, and and I kind of figured it out and trial and error. And the more games we 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 played, and I caught the 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 better I got. So um, that was kind of how that that worked out. And uh, wasn't the best catcher growing up, but really learned how to catch uh, in the bullpen at Kentucky. That's really where I learned how to catch. You mentioned that. Going to Kentucky was a risk, a risk of not seeing the field. If you, what was your recruitment like then? As far as you know, if, if you weren't a guy that maybe they laid the red carpet out for and said, "Hey, you know, we need you to, you know, we need you to get behind the dish," maybe as a freshman. Yeah, so uh, you know, I had I had a D three offer from a actually it was NAI I think uh, back back then uh, from Milligan College, a little small small school in Johnson City. Um, and I had an offer from Liberty to play uh, both baseball and football and had an offer from Carson Newman. And, you know, while all this is going on, um, my brother's coach, who I grew up um, with their family, and uh, he coached at Walter State. And I did hitting lessons with him for years. And uh he just helped me out through through high school, and and uh, he had some connections through Walter State with one of the assistants at Kentucky, and that's kind of how the connection started. Um, and when they came and watched me play, I really didn't have any big numbers. Uh, you know, I was just a, a regular high school player, and uh, he he really tried to pull a favor, and uh, you know. It, didn't really go anywhere after the first time that they came and watched me. And I got a chance to go to a showcase in Lexington uh, with a couple of our travel, travel ball guys. And it was a twins showcase and it's probably the best I've ever hit in rounds of, of batting practice. And uh, the head coach was there. Um, John Cohen, he's at uh, AD at Mississippi state now. They pretty much said, you need to be here. And uh, when, when Coach Weisberg sat me down, he said, really don't have that much money, but we can offer you books and, and, a, and a room and uh, you can come play for us. And, that, and that's kind of it kind of took off from there. Yeah, I mean, and no offense to those smaller schools, but when you, you know, when you hear Kentucky – and when Kentucky tells you you need to be here, you you got to go. Yeah, you got to go. I agree. So what were your expectations kind of heading into Lexington then? You are just a, a book-in-a-room guy, kind of a late signee. you know. It, and at what point in your freshman year did you learn that, you know, or realize that you'd be redshirting? I feel like that's a tough thing to swallow. It's something I've had to do personally. It's it's not the easiest. 
No, and and when you look around, um, and in that point in time, I think we had forty to forty five players um, on the team, and I I don't know if the rules have changed since then, but but we had a lot of players, and uh, you look around, you just knew that. I mean, there was grown men in that locker room. You you knew that <laughs> I'm not going to see the field. Um, and uh, we had a good group of, of uh, freshmen. And, you know, probably I think only two did not redshirt. Uh, one of those being Kitmus, Jason Kitmus. Who ended up having a decent career. Yeah, yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't a bad player. <laughs> And uh, the other was my roommate, Duran Ferguson. So there's really two out of probably 10 freshmen that didn't redshirt. Um, and it's tough. I mean, I was up there on my own. We, you know, the, the guys got to got to go travel and, and, and play all these games. And the red shirts are just, you know, left behind and you, you don't get any work. You're just kind of <laughs> hanging out there on your own. So it's definitely a tough thing. Yeah, redshirting is a lonely thing too, especially like you said, especially on those weekends when when the guys on the team are playing. When they leave, uh, I would imagine even on a campus like Kentucky, it suddenly feels suddenly feels very lonely. Um, no, it really does. And you you know you see uh, one of your classmates out or or uh, somebody else, and they wonder, uh, isn't your team in Tuscaloosa this weekend? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they actually are, <laughs> and I'm not with them. That's a tough go. So what, you know, how tough is it to stay sharp and improve your game and just kind of feel confident, especially after, you know, going into the next year, um, you know, you spend most of the time as a reserve catcher, you only get six at bats. Do you still, what's tougher, just working on your game or keeping confidence in your game that you can do this at that level? Yeah. And I think that was the biggest, the biggest thing. And I, on, you know, going back and looking at it, I mean, I was, uh, I was scared to death. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't think I belonged there. And, uh, um, once I could prove to myself that I, that I could be there, that's when the game kind of changed for me. Um, this, I guess my second year there, I still had two JUCO All-Americans, catching in front of me. So I still, it was, it was still a little scary thing. And, uh, you know, all I did was, was what the coach told me to do. And, uh, I probably caught, I would say 90% of the bullpens. Um, so my class schedule would go, you know, they would text me, Hey, can you catch a pen? And I would never say no. So I caught probably 90% of the, the bullpens and that's, that's really where I learned to catch. Um, and I caught so many of them. Uh, it just started, you know, the game started to slow down and, um, that's kind of what led me into the next year. Um, and I still didn't think I had a shot. Uh, we had a sinker ball pitcher, pitcher that, that, uh, I caught every one of his bullpens and, uh, he, he played a, or started a game and, uh, didn't really like how it went. And, I kind of worked my way in through through that avenue, and that's how I kind of cracked the lineup my third year. So your third year, you're you're a mainstay in uh, in the Kentucky lineup. You're splitting time, but you get, you know you get 116 at bats. When you get into SEC play, and suddenly you've gone from redshirt and reserve to 
major contributor in the toughest baseball conference in the country. What is what's the experience starting for the first time in an SEC road series? Do you remember who that series was against? <sighs> now that you call, no, I do, I do not actually. <laughs> but just then, uh, in general, what what is it like going on the SEC on the road, and especially kind of. Is that a beating when you get into SEC play? Like, is it there just an exhaustion to because there's not really an easy stop, at least in terms of crowds in the SEC? No, um, I would say the smallest crowds were, you know, probably us, Vandy, and Tennessee. Um, and there at the end, Vandy was 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 gaining and getting somewhere to the rest of the places. Um, toughest places were definitely Alabama, South Carolina, LSU, and Arkansas. Uh, those places um, were, were crazy. And uh, uh, funny story, my my dad still talks about it uh, today. He, he, he was pretty close in, in getting kicked out of the South Carolina Stadium on, on that trip. So, And that might have been the first trip I – that might have been the road trip. Um, I, I do remember Justin Smoke hit like three home runs off of us, and uh, one, two were right-handed and one was left-handed. And I just, I'll, I'll never forget that. Just thinking, well, I might, I might not need to be here. So I guess catching in the SEC at that time, you're getting a front-row view to future, you know, big league smokes there. Pedro Alvarez is at Vanderbilt. Um, you know, is there, there any hitters besides that that kind of stick out is when they, when they rolled into the box, it was like, you know what, we might as well just, we, we might as well not throw anything in the zone. Yeah. Um, I always remember Matt Laporta. I'm not sure how far he made it. Um, I felt he, like he, he got, he did get to the show. He's a first round pick. Okay. Okay. I, I think he hit the farthest ball I've ever seen hit at, uh, at Kentucky. Um, <laughs> I think it hit the football practice field. Um, he, he, he always stuck, uh, stuck out. Um, you know, Zanino was on, was, was for, was playing with Florida there at the end. I'm trying to think who else that we faced David Price. My roommate busted up his no hitter at her place. Um, and then they had a closer that was, uh, unhittable too. That was, uh, Casey Weathers. If I remember yes. Right. Weathers, Weathers. Yes. Yeah, there's and, always someone on in the in the SEC. Oh, I know. And the other guy that that I feel like threw a uh, invisible was I think his name was Scott Biddle for Ole Miss, and we never touched him. No easy weekends in SEC no. play. Um, that first year though, the the first year you break in after redshirting, after you know being a reserve. Catcher is kind of like a de facto team leader. You know, you're the on-field QB, and you've got to have the trust of the pitching staff. When you're a guy who has six career ABs, like, how do you build that? Is it all – was it all just building into the bullpen? Did you have that credibility when you slotted into the starting role because of that pitcher who put you there? Or is that is that something that's kind of – can only be earned on the field? Yeah, and I think I was still in, in, a, in a junior role there, and I, and I felt that. Um when I was that the retro sophomore year, I was catching the guy that I caught a thousand times in, in the bullpen, and I was zoned in to to really just catching him, me and him, and that was it. Um, it didn't really the game didn't really slow down until that my last two years, and, and I understood you know the the field of play and everything else that came in 
into catching and calling the games and learning sequences and 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 actually calling a game by myself. So um, I would say that year I was more just like a robot. <laughs> I didn't really know what I was doing, but whatever the coach told us to do, that's what I would do. Well, you have this sophomore year. You finally break through. You're, you're a starter at Kentucky. You rake during summer ball in the Valley League. What are you envisioning for your junior year at that point? Have you given have you given pro ball any thought at that point? A little bit, but but it, it really didn't seem seem real um, until until you start getting those letters in the mail, and that and that's when it's okay. Well, this this might actually happen, um, and it's, I guess it's similar to when people get same with college letters, but you get handwritten letters from the twins from the from the a's and you know you, you can't wait to get to the locker room to see if you have that letter in, in the top of your locker from uh from one of those organizations and that's that's really when when you could tell that okay there might be actually some interest here is there a, is that something that that stays top of mind during a game do you ever think about it like once you start getting those letters is there ever like either a good moment or a bad moment, you know, like a hard hit ball in the gap or like a strikeout where you're like, I hope the scouts did or didn't see that. No, I think that's definitely um, in the back of a lot of people's minds and was in mine too. Um, you know, the, you get the guys on the bench, so, you know, two two years younger than, than you, and they come up, tap you on the shoulder, hey, I saw, I saw three scouts in, in the stadium. Uh, earlier you know um you go back in between innings to warm up the pitcher and you kind of scan behind the umpire and you see you know seven seven guys that uh stand out and they have a uh stopwatch and jugs gun right beside them you know and it and it it is a little pressure um and uh but that's part of it so that redshirt junior year you start off hot and then and then you break your catching thumb. First and foremost, how do you go through, how do you catch d- during the rest of the season with a broken thumb? And how do you hit seven dingers with a broken thumb? <laughs> well, we went to, uh, that was my first time to New Orleans. And uh, we were playing, uh, I think it was New Orleans in a midweek game. And then, or after, I think, I don't know if it was, we played LSU before uh, we played New Orleans or after, but I broke it in the new Orleans game. And I actually was probably, um, I was scheduled not to play cause I had caught like four or five games in a row and our other catcher went into the game or started the game and new Orleans was actually a pretty rowdy crowd and he got the yips. So I don't even think I had my cleats. I borrowed somebody's cleats and went in, I think it was a six inning. Caught the rest of the game, and uh, the eighth inning, we brought in the closer early, Logan Darnell, and uh, he had a very good career. Um, he threw one of the heaviest balls still to this day from the left from uh, uh, the left side. And every now and then, his two seam would cut. Well, he threw one about 96, 97 that, that, that did not two seam. It it cut right in uh, to my mitt, and it didn't. I still caught it. It just was thrown so hard, um, 
it it just shattered it i went called tom and, and ran out there and and said i i think i broke my thumb and finished the game ended up getting an x-ray and it was it was broken uh, my roommate keenan wiley his dad was a dentist and the trainers tried everything they said you know you're not going to play you know you can't do this. You got to put a cast on it, blah, blah, blah. So I went to Keenan's dad and he made a special uh, mold out of his uh, dental equipment. You took your broken thumb to a dentist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he made this special, this special mold and um, the, the fracture was, was from my fingernail to the, I guess, first knuckle. So he made this, contraption where it protected it transferred the energy i guess from the tip of the thumb to my hand if that makes sense and it worked um i mean it wasn't great that still was painful uh, i played on uh i don't know what those painkillers are uh most whatever it is that that you can play i think it's tramadol i think i played on that for my entire <laughs> junior season you play that year. Why go play in the Cape after? Yeah, and that, and that was another. <laughs> it, was, it was it was it was all kind of thrown off. Uh, you know the Cape the Cape's usually for those big time freshmen and juniors. Um, my roommate got a call from uh, from YD uh, and uh, and and they talked talked them into bringing me up there as well. Um, it was actually, I don't know what they called it, but I, I didn't have a permanent spot. So Keenan and I went up to YD and we were on like a temp, I think it was a temp contract. And we were definitely the oldest players there. And um, we made it two weeks and they, they chose their team. Uh, I think it was Coach Roberts I played under. And he sent us to Coach Englert with Harwich. And we both went and we played the full season there. Was there any part of you that was like, hey, I've got a broken thumb. I'm just going to rest or is going to the Cape just too good to pass up? Yeah, it was too good. <laughs> it really was. So um, it ended up getting better probably a month into the season. And, and, and it was practically gone by then. So, I mean, review the Cape Cod experience for me then. Because it's it's I think it's what you dream about if you're a college baseball player. It's like that in Omaha. Yeah. So when we got the YD, um, I remember our first first inter squad. Um, I was thrown thrown back there, hadn't caught any of these pitchers, and I was trying to you know show the coach that I deserved to be here. I wanted to make the team. Um, and this pitcher, he was you know kind of like Logan. I mean, he threw extremely hard. Uh, you know, he threw a curveball that practically wrapped around first base and, and, and landed on the plate. Um, his, his fastball would sometimes cut. It would sometimes do things that you didn't think it would do. Um, and I didn't catch very well. I didn't catch very well at all. And um, I kind of got lucky that, that Harwich picked me up after after that inner squad and uh, watching me. And the pitcher that ended up I was catching was Chris Sale. Oh, yeah. And 
I, I don't know Chris today that, that well. Um, I know a lot of the other guys that are in big leagues that I played with, but um, he, he was wild. He was wild then. And he would probably tell you that too. What do you think he weighed at that point? Oh, he was a bag of bones, but he was, you know, he was tall. I mean, his arms going everywhere, throwing to the plate. He wore a, uh, <laughs> it seemed like a 20 to 24 inch uh, silver chain at all times. <laughs> <laughs> he, he still might wear that. I don't know. I, I do not. I don't recall. He was out all last year. I don't remember. Yeah. It's been a while since we've all seen Chris Sale pitch. When, when you're in the Cape, even like even more so than SEC play, like that scouts paradise. That's you're surrounded by guys like Chris Sale who are going in the first round the next June. Um, you're surrounded by a ton of guys who are playing pro ball at that point. How did you, how did you think you stacked up as far as the next level? Did you think there was a place for you there? Um, you know, I felt like I, I handled my own catching, and uh, throughout throughout the league, I felt like defensively I could hang with anybody. Um, I absolutely got diced up at the plate though. I did not have a good, good summer at the plate. And I, and I think that was a little bit of me being tired and, um, trying to, trying to change back to the wood bat and, and facing, you know, real time pitching. I mean, it was big time pitching and I never could get my timing up. And, uh, that that was a little bit of a uh, humbling, you know, Tom. And uh, I still I still felt like if I had fifty to hundred more bats against those guys, I would have figured it out. But you just this day in and day out, somebody different that throws ninety five every time you turn around, and those fields are hard to play on. You know, most of them don't have uh, batter's eye. Uh, Harwich is an absolute graveyard. Um, it's tough. It just it's just tough all around. Yeah, it's always it's interesting, but still kind of charming that the the best amateur you know college league college summer wood bat league is like played on seemingly like small high school fields. Yeah, so, it it really is cool, and I I haven't been back since, but I always told myself that I would go just to just to see it now. And, um, it it really is a cool place. I, I lived two doors down from a place called the Hot Stove. And uh, I would always go there after games and eat. Um, and I, I still talk to the host family today. Uh, actually, the, the last person before me. So they skipped a year in hosting. I think um, their family went somewhere else that year. But the year before was was Tim Lemscombe. And then I came in. I bet that was it. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, you, you and I, it's not like we have this great rapport, but I can't imagine two more different people than you and Tim Lincecum. Yeah. So I got to hear all the stories about his summer. <laughs> I I would love at some point to hear what Tim Lincecum was doing in the summer. Uh, besides yeah, besides throwing well, uh, Tim Lincecum yeah. seems to be a, an interesting man with his free time, but you uh, you finish up in the Cape, get, head back to campus for your fifth and final year at Kentucky, and this is a you know this is a baseball podcast, but I do have to ask you get back to campus. Joining you on campus is Coach Cal, John Wall, and Demarcus Cousins. <laughs> Were you able to take in any games during that season? Because this basically starts that Kentucky starts the one and done thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was the f- now you know in the Billy Gillespie 
Gillespie year, it wasn't as bad. The Tubby Smith wasn't as, but they still had that eliteness. Um, you know, they were at Kentucky. You, you didn't see them. They were kind of on their own. Uh, they did their own, their, their own thing. They lived in the lodge. Uh, they were kind of separated and, uh, you know, the, the regular student and even student athlete did not see the basketball players. Um, I had three, three football roommates and, uh, you know, we were all together over at kind of the same facility, worked out in the same weight room track was there. Um, you know, the rest of the sports, were kind of together and basketball is kind of on their own. So you never really saw those guys. Um, the only, I guess, uh, thing that we were related to with, with basketball was our academic counselor. So I got to know him really well, still talking to him today. And, uh, that's kind of how we got in with, with the basketball guys. And, uh, we had kind of the, the the house that everybody came to on the weekend so uh those guys did show up a couple times <laughs> where uh you, do, you don't have to dive in any further than this but john wall and demarcus cousins good time i feel like demarcus cousins could go either way at a house party yeah 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 no boogie's a good time <laughs> <laughs> i would i would imagine he, he has his moments but um your goals you know you go into that senior season it's your fifth year. You're you're a mainstay on the team. Um, you're a catcher. You're a team leader. Uh, all the all the writing on the Kentucky website is still very complimentary of of you and how you handled yourself in the clubhouse. But your personal goals heading into that season does it feel like a pro ball tryout? Were you able to enjoy? Like I remember personally from my own you know small college senior year, and then I knew I would not be throwing a single pitch for the rest of my life after that season was over. And so I would take time. You know, I'd be like at practice warming up one day and I would just kind of be like, hey, I'm, I'm going to remember this. I enjoy this. Were you able to kind of live in the moment, and enjoy it like that? Or was it was it more pressure because there's still that looming specter of pro ball? Um, you know, it, it was it was kind of uh, felt like things were winding down. Uh, the craziest thing was was that that summer right before the draft. Um, I got two calls. Um, I remember vividly, uh, that redshirt junior year, the Phillies called and said, we're going to call you in the seventh round and we're going to offer you X amount of money. Will you take it? I said, yes, never got a call. So I don't know what happened, but ever since that, I was like, well, it's just not meant to be. I probably you know, don't have a, a very good chance at, at playing somewhere. Maybe I can sneak onto a team here or there, but I'm going to have fun. I'm going to enjoy it. And uh, that's what I did and got lucky that the Astros picked me up. I really did. Well, before we get into that, you need, can you walk me through, do you remember your last collegiate home at bat? Because it's still on YouTube. <laughs> I actually do. And, uh, I thought after that at bat, I might have a chance because there was quite a few scouts in the stands and it was a nasty day and we were not supposed to win. And it was a dog fight the entire time. And, uh, and you're playing LSU. That's right. And 
we we beat their closer, Matt Matty Ott. I don't know if he's still playing or not, but um, he had one of the best closing records that year. I think he pitched uh, every game probably in the College World Series the year before. Um, so that was that was that was probably my best best moment. Um, and I still get people text me today to make fun of me that I. They think I, I pimped that home run too a little too much. I was about to say that I, I watched the video on YouTube. You hit a a grand go ahead grand slam, and uh, or was it a walk off grand slam? It was a go ahead. It was a go ahead. Well, yeah, you uh, arms raised. I mean, standing. You you hit it, and then you like stand in the lefty batter's box. Arm raised. It's just incredible pimp job. Just truly, <laughs> truly was- incredible. It wasn't wasn't good. I shouldn't have done that. But. Oh, you should be very proud that that's still on YouTube. But <laughs> you, um, so you wrap up at Kentucky. Uh, you get your, you know, you get five years in. At you know, as things start leading into the draft, you know, you mentioned the Astros pick you up after the draft. What's the what's the process of being an undrafted free agent? Are were you paying attention during the draft? Were you did you have hope? What was kind of that whole process? Yeah, I watched the whole thing. Um, and you know a lot of my buddies got picked up and uh really during the the later rounds uh coach henderson told me hey be ready you know i've had a lot of guys that that are going to take you after the draft just be ready um i didn't really know what that meant so got a call actually got a call from the red sox and then i got a call from the astros and the Red Sox guy told me he was going to call me back and the Astros guy, when he called, he just said, Hey, we'll give you a thousand bucks. We have no idea where you're going to play. Bring your catcher's gear. If you have a first base mitt, bring it, bring an infield glove, bring an outfield glove, bring everything you got. Cause we don't know where you're going to play. And I took that. I'm like, well, you know, this is, this is a, an opportunity. Let's go do it and see what happens. And I, and I really wish I could have, could have caught been a catcher but you know i learned a lot and i I think it it may have been a good thing for me where did they send you out um we went straight to Kissimmee for uh i think it was called mini camp for like two weeks Uh, we were with all the the draft guys and did they put you at first base yeah i played first base yeah What's kind of the game plan as an undrafted free agent? Like, how far in the future can you look? Is there any way to get comfortable with that, especially when they they actually send you out to to the Appy League? Yeah, it was it was almost like a uh, <clears throat> a, a time time machine back to my freshman year in college, sophomore year in college. <laughs> I mean, I felt like I was out of place again. I really did. Um, <clears throat> you know, I wasn't I wasn't in my position. Um, I've got all these guys that got. Big time money, good signing bonuses. They actually got drafted, and then you got the redheaded stepchild that that came in, you know, <laughs> drafted and, and signed free agent. So, uh, not to add that I was probably two years older than everybody else. How does how does leadership work out in a clubhouse like that? Because, like you said, by age and experience, you're the top guy in those dugouts. You're the oldest. You've played in competitive SEC games. You're you homered against LSU like two months prior. On bonus, you're the low end. Um, people are probably not expecting you to make it to the big leagues. How do you navigate a team after leaving a team, leaving a situation where you're the unquestioned leader? Yeah, it was it was pretty difficult. Um, you know, the the catcher's kind of like the quarterback. 
So me moving out of that position didn't didn't help things on on the way I was used to to leading a team and doing doing what I did in the clubhouse. Um, I kind of took a different approach, more of a more of the laid back kind of help people out that, that needed help and 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 kind of one person over by uh, one person one at a time won them over and and uh, started kind of gelling with the team that way. Um, it it was different because I always my roommate was the catcher and you know I kind of lived through him on on getting back to to getting behind the dish. But never could get control of the team. You're, you're, you still, for me, I still felt like an outlier at first base. And what I wanted to do was just take care of what I had to do, and and hopefully help the team when when I got to the plate. So, what was going from SEC travel to Appy League travel like, and Appy League life like? I've heard things are nice in the SEC. <clears throat> They're extremely nice. Um, it, it's a total 360, um, and and to hear the other guys on the team talk about the Appy League, it's pretty funny because that's that's where I live and that's where I'm from, and uh, it I mean compared to all the other places, it's a dump. I mean it's the 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 fields are old. Um, they've been there forever. They've, they don't they they don't renovate them. There's not a lot of fans. Um, now our stadium, Greenville, was extremely nice. Uh, Kingsport was pretty nice, and Danville was nice. Um, all the other uh, teams were were small coal mining towns: Bluefield, Pulaski, Princeton, Bristol, Kingsport, Johnson City, um, Burlington. They're all little small small places, and it, it's just funny when you get all these guys in the same room from Venezuela, Dominican. Uh, California, Texas, they're all, uh, you're all put in the same environment and it, and it's just funny. Um, it's just a weird, um, kind of interaction, but it's, but it's, it's, it's kind of cool. You get, you get the group together and you're about to go, uh, try to win a baseball game together and you're all from, from different walks of life and it's, it's fun. You play out that year. Uh, you have a pretty good year in the Appy League. Uh, get a little bit of time in the, the New York Penn League. You go to spring training uh, 2011, and the Astros release you towards the end of spring training. Is there any thought at that point to packing it in? Because unlike a lot of guys who get released in pro ball, you've you've already got your college. You weren't a high school signee. You weren't a guy who signed out of junior. You're, you're done. Yeah, yeah. No, I definitely, I definitely thought that. And that – you know, going from uh, the Appy League, had a great year, and then getting called up to the Penn League and winning the championship. I mean, it was like I was on a high the whole year. Um, uh, a week after we won the championship, they, they called me down to Instructional League. So when I got that call, I was like, okay, I've, I've really got a sh- shot to do something here. Um, and... Uh, Went to Instructs and roomed with uh, Kike Hernandez. Um, you know, two, Altuve was playing second. Jimmy Paredes was was shortstop. JD Martinez was the DH. I mean, it was like, okay, I've got a real shot here. Uh, I mean, these were big time guys. And you know, Instructs finished up. I I feel like I learned how to to catch a ground ball. <laughs> Still. <laughs> Uh, don't look that great doing that, but 
anyway, I, I go back to the spring training that next year, you know, feeling like, okay, I got a real shot here. Um, the whole front office changed all the, all the guys that I felt like had my respect and, and, uh, um, I guess felt like I was a, a player that, that was there to stay, um, were gone. And, uh, I was just another man on the list of 23, 24. And that was it. And I did think that was, that was my last shot. The Angels, the Angels pick you up, and you, you get another chance. You play out low A with the Angels, um, and then the the same thing comes around 2012. Cut at the end of spring training. Um, again, is there you know how do you, how'd you wind up in uh, in Traverse? How you know why why go play indie ball versus you know just going to do something else, taking your your college degree and getting on and you know telling baseball goodbye. Yeah, and I, and I always had that 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 little small itty bitty chance in the back of my mind. I'm like, I think I just I don't think I had a, a real opportunity. I have to fight. I have to try to get get this opportunity back to to get my chance to make to the big leagues. And uh, with the Angels, I I fit in really well. I was back behind the dish. Um, I felt good. My low A manager loved me. Um, I actually lived at his house during spring training and, uh, I, I thought I had an in and a lot of the times that's what it takes. So I thought I had an in, um, spring training comes around. I have a pretty good spring. I, I match up well with all the catchers. Um, Scott service comes over and he's the new, uh, I don't even know what, what that position is called, but he, he controls the whole minor league. I think, I guess it's minor league coordinator and he was a catcher and I thought, okay, this is my time. This is my chance. I can show this guy that I can play defensively with the rest of these dudes. So we get into it. Um, I have a pretty good spring training and I, I get to go a couple games up in the bit in big leagues. And I had I had a little bit of taste of it. And I thought that, you know, I could make it. And they brought in uh, a guy that had big league experience from from the Rangers. And that's who I was battling it out with uh, on the AAA team. I was actually on Trout's team. Um, and and I thought that I was going to make the cut because we only had it was was us two catchers and uh it was the last week of spring training and scott service sat me down and said you know you're not a fit here and i and i was i told him i said i i'm not taking that for an answer and i fought it and i thought there's no way i i, I cannot i cannot leave here you know i'm, I'm here i was playing with the triple a team and uh so when that happened i was kind of in denial and i'm like I can't believe this happened. You know, I've got, I've got to get back to playing. And that's kind of how, uh, frontier league came in. Uh, uh, Greg Langman, he actually played and, and coached in the minor league system at, at, with the Astros. And he tried to get me out of college when, uh, I didn't get drafted. So I went there and knew that he, he wanted me and knew I could get some playing time and, and met a lot of good people, and that's kind of how the Frontier League started. 
when you signed, did you put any sort of uh, timeline on yourself? We've had guys come on the show before say like, okay, I'm going to do, you know, I'll do a year of indie ball. If I don't get picked back up, I'm out. When you initially started out, did you say, I'm giving this, you know, I'm giving myself this much rope and that's it? Um, you know, I really didn't. I really didn't. I think it was, it was just the nature of what I was used to. Um, and I didn't realize that until two years ago when I didn't, I wasn't getting prepared for baseball. I wasn't packing my bags. I wasn't going to play. And I just got into that rhythm that that's what I'm made to do. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm going to play baseball during the summer and take a few months off and get training, get ready for next year. And that's, and I got in that mode and I didn't want to give it up. What were the kind of the big noticeable differences between indie ball and your time and affiliated? Like right off the bat, those two years, you did two years in the frontier league, your 25 and 26 year old years. Um, the, the biggest difference was, I think the respect that people on, on in the indie ball, uh, leagues gave you, uh, you knew that, that people were there for a reason and, it was it was cutthroat. I mean, it it was they they play harder baseball in the independent league than they ever do in any of the minor league systems. It's not even close because you know it's that's the end of your life uh, as a baseball player, and people fight for their life every game. <laughs> it's crazy, um, but that's what made it fun because everyone was there to win. They weren't there to get to the next level. Now, that's that's totally not true, but but it is majority um, compared to the minor league system. You got a guy that's he's trying to get his numbers. He's trying to get to single A. He's trying to get to double A. He's trying to get to triple A. You know, I don't care if we're winning. Who cares if we win? And you can tell that that the game the game changes. People play different when they're trying to win. And I think when you approach the game that way, you're a better player and you have better results. And I really didn't realize that. Um, I, I lost that fact from college when I went into the minor league system because, you know, everybody was, was, was thinking about their numbers. And I lost that little bit when I was in the minor leagues. And then when the Frontier League hit, that's when I realized, okay, that's that's how you play this game. You try to win. So in indie ball, kind of, what does your day to day look like? Like, where are you living? You know, what are your goals? What is the life of an indie ball backstop at that point? Who's in his mid twenties? Um, so it's very similar to, uh, um, I guess, lifestyle as as a minor leaguer. It's very very similar. Most people are with host families or um, an apartment, and. Uh, same kind of lifestyle, you know, you're getting up at, at, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock, depending on, you know, where you were the night before or how late the game was. Um, if you're coming from a 14 hour bus ride home, uh, you're sleeping in, you're going to the park, you're getting quick lunch and, you know, you're at the stadium at 12, 1230 for a seven o'clock game. Uh, you, you get a little work in the cage take BP, come back in, get a snack, go out, do it all over again. 
Um, so it, it was very similar to the lifestyle of, of the Meyer leagues. It really was. And what does that off season for you look like? Cause I, I can't imagine you've been able to stretch that thousand dollar bonus too far. Um, <laughs> what, what are you, what are you, you know, are you having, a, are you working in the off season? Like, how are you getting prepared for next spring? And is there always, you know, in each, cause you, you know, we'll get into it. You spend a lot of time in any ball in that off season, is there always that hope that there's going to be the spring training invite or, or something like that comes around? Yeah, I mean, that, it's in the back of your mind. And, and you know, reality kicks in that, okay, my, my chances are diminishing. Um, but but there's there's still always that last little bit of hope that you gotta you got to keep driving and striving for. Um, and, and that's, you know, I still worked out hard during the off season, but at the same time, I, I went to work. I mean, I I worked for uh, my brother for two, three years and then worked for my dad's company. And I did that until I had to leave. And I literally would would work until the day I left. So my off season, I guess, uh, routine did diminish a little bit when I got into indie ball just because I was trying to, to work a, a real job and, and still try to be a baseball player at the same time. And you really – you can't do that. I mean, you can, but it's not uh, going to be in, in your best interest. When you get into like age, you know, 27, 20, is there anyone in your life telling you like, you know, hey, man, how uh, how long are you going to keep doing this? Or oh, yeah. I got that all the time. And and it was kind of the same thing. It's like, I, I don't know what I would do without going to play. And I wasn't ready for, uh, I guess, a, a, a normal lifestyle. Uh, I just, just wasn't, wasn't ready for it. And, uh, I fought it for a long time. Now I had a blast doing it, but I fought it for a long time. So in 2014, what gets you up to Pomona, New York to play for the Rockland Boulders? Um, kind of crazy road on that too. Um, my roommate, Chase Birch, great, great player. Um, he was, he was kind of the one that, that directed us to the next team, um, he always kind of followed his lead and, and thought he was a really good leader and uh, uh, really thought he was a, a tremendous hitter and compared to what I saw with the Astros and Angels. So I, I kind of listened to, to his direction. He had, a, he had an end with Fargo, um, uh, North Dakota team, and uh, uh, we together went and, and – traveled to that team and, and made the team. And then I got cut from there. Let's see the second, second week we were there. And, uh, there was kind of some inside, uh, catcher trades that came in and the guy let me go. And again, I got a call on my ride home from North Dakota from Jamie Keefe, the manager of the rock and boulders said, Hey, why don't you just come straight to Rockland? And uh, that's what I did. And I had I had some buddies that were already there, Junior Rojo and Anton DeJesus, so I, uh, that I played with in summer ball at Kentucky. So I felt like it was a it was a a thing that was meant to be. So I just I drove straight from Fargo to Rockland, and uh, that's when I started there in 2014. Were you as taken with that team and that city right away as your baseball reference page might suggest? <laughs> um, I still thought it was a stepping stone at first. 
and then you know every game I played it was it was uh you know I got more and more comfortable there and uh it was it was like uh year after year I just knew that's where I was going and uh I ended up you know having a, a really good career there and having a good time and, and knowing a lot of people and still talk to them today. What makes a good indie ball city then? Like, why was that a good place to play? Why did that end up being a good place for you? Cause you, you end up spending five years there. You play into your thirties until age 31. Yeah. So I had, I had a really good setup. Um, you know, I had an apartment there <clears throat> that, that they furnished the, the actual stadium was two years old. Um, it was built to AAA specs, um, unbelievable stadium, great locker room, indoor cages. I mean, the full the full gamut. Um, not to mention that you were, you know, a hop and a skip from New York City. So it was just a cool area. Um, Jamie Jamie kept me there, and that was that that was the main reason I kept coming back. Um, uh, Jamie was, uh, you know, he was my guy, and and that's why I kept going back. The kind of a, a baseball aspect of it, the Can Am League had four teams. Is the guy who has to call the pitches when you're seeing the same hitters, you know, constantly, but they're also, you know, they're seeing your arms constantly. Does that make your job tougher or easier? The the constant repetitiveness. Uh, it was uh, 2014. Luckily, luckily we got to play the American association uh mid-season and get away from from those guys but it i definitely agree with that i mean uh, the scouting reports were non-existent after the third series because i knew every one of their hitters um you still had a little bit of turnover where guys are getting signed or retiring or going elsewhere or getting released um so you did get to see some new faces but it made it extremely difficult because everybody knows everybody's weakness and uh it gets exploited and attacked uh, every time you play everybody on on our team loved going out midwest to get away from those same teams we played uh, that year um 15 and 16 um i guess we added a couple ottawa and uh who else did we play the I guess the road teams and still went out Midwest. So it was a little better that year, but, but 14 was really, really difficult playing those guys. Same thing over and over. So, you know, you're age 27, you're age 28, you're 29, 30, you're catching, you're hitting home runs. Uh, You know, did you, was there still the hope of getting that call of saying, Hey, we need someone to come, you know, catching double a, Anything like that. Does that ever go away? Is there ever, do you ever become not complacent, but like just happy with what you're doing? Or is there, is the hope, does the hope ever leave? You know, I, I kind of felt like I, I did get complacent a little bit there. And I, I felt like um, I, that, that was where, you know, I was meant to be from, from the beginning. And I ended up at the end of the road where I was supposed to finish my career. And, you know, I always thought that and, I, and it made me comfortable and it, and it was a feel good, feel good time. But in that, you know, we played, uh, I played summer ball with Stephen Cardulo and he was one of my teammates for two years. And 
lo and behold, he make he gets signed, fights his way through the system, fights his way through AAA, and makes it to the big leagues. And we're all his teammates from Rockland watching him the next year in the locker room in the big leagues. And then it starts all over again. Okay, if he can do it, surely I can get a shot because my numbers were similar to his. You know, how do I, how can I get myself into his situation? And then the hope, that little bit of hope fires right back up. There's a great article in the Bristol Herald Courier by a guy named Tim Hayes in 2017, declares you the mayor of Rockland. Uh, really enjoyable read for anyone who's enjoying this podcast, kind of talking about your journey, um, how long you'd spent there. Uh, at that point in 2017, you're almost three and a half years older than the league average age. Uh, they, there's a quote I like I want to ask you about, uh, about your locker. It says it has anything and everything anyone could ever need times two, a classic MacGyver. What are the, what are the locker essentials? MacGyver, what do you have to have in your professional locker? If you would have seen my locker, I don't know that we could uh, tell you all the stuff that were that was uh, located in that locker, but it was boxes of things. And I'm a I'm a real I'm real OCD about uh, where things are organized, what goes where, um, and where the placement is. But I had every concoction you can think of. Um, I had from from uh, uh, you know sewing kits to fixing fixing pants through uh, my sewing kit through uh, relacing gloves, relacing mitts to uh, the best uh, horse muscle rubs that, that are out there. So I had it from from A to Z. And uh, uh, <laughs> Jerry McDonald loves calling me the MacGyver. He just loves that, loves that saying. There, I think on every college team, there's like that fifth year senior who has all that stuff. Like it's the guy yeah. you go to to get your glove relaced or whatever stuff like that. So I'd imagine after you know a decade of pro ball, that gets even that's compounded. Yeah, probably. I, I would I would relace two to three gloves a week, uh, but I but I enjoyed it. You know, I really did, and uh, uh, the players really enjoyed it. When, once I got done, you know, a fresh lace glove. Uh, fresh, freshly conditioned. It's just like, uh, it's like a little present. So your final year in 2018, you are a player coach. You're the pitching coach and playing. You're in that indie ball. You're in that Lou Ford territory of, uh, of, of playing and coaching. How much, how much extra work goes in it? What, what was your experience as a player coach? Is that something you enjoyed? Did it, did it add value to your experience that summer? No, it did. Um, what, it, what it really did for me was to see if that was uh, the route I really wanted to go. Uh, if, if I wanted to continue my career was to get into coaching. And <clears throat> I didn't know it, but I was already doing it as a catcher there. And uh, Jamie and I got really close and his trust and what I thought was right. Uh, that's, that's kind of how it led into me being uh, a coach there and the players respected me and it was an easy, easy fill in. Uh, I, I did need some help with, um, you know, putting the rotations together and then getting guys loose. But, but we had enough older guys on the staff that they, they knew who was hot that night and who wasn't and uh who's first out of the pen and who's last so uh it, it was tricky but it was it was fun and it and it 
they really helped me realize that that side of the game and uh, look at baseball a little different, different perspective. So is that what kind of led you to your decision to, to finally hang it up after 2018? Well, it was kind of a, uh, when I didn't play in 2019, I thought, okay, I'm going to take a year off and I'm going to come back. And I just got used to uh, not being up at 3 a.m. every night and riding a, uh, a bus and sleeping on the floor until we get there and getting up at 7 a.m., eating breakfast and going back to sleep for three hours and then going to the field and beating my uh, body to, to pieces uh, and doing that 150 times a year. And I just got used to, to not doing it. And I, I lost that, uh, not drive, but, but the routine, I guess. And, and that's what, when Jamie left Rockland, uh, I planned on going to high, high point, uh, in the Atlantic league with him. And, uh, I, I didn't do it. And it just, it kind of just, you know, like uh, all the other guys that get released and the managers talk about people just riding off into the sunset. I felt like that's just kind of what happened. I just kind of disappeared. Have you been back to Rockland since your last game? I haven't. I haven't. I would like to. They they called uh, a lot of the old uh, guys on the other teams and and said they were going to bring everybody back together. And I, I would enjoy that. I really would. Um, I had a good relationship with the owner. I knew probably half the fan base by first name. Uh, still talk to, you know, majority of them today. There's a there's a, a big family that I grew pretty close to that that comes down and visits every year. Um, it's just the the relationships I made through uh, playing baseball is something you can't you can't take away. I mean it's. Uh, I didn't make it to the big leagues, but I made a lot of good friendships and had an absolute blast. Um, and uh, I think that's one of the things that, that makes me feel good about it, um, because I, I talked to a lot, a lot of other guys that are in the big leagues and other players that are making millions upon millions of dollars, and they hate the game. They absolutely can't stand it. And uh, it's not a it's kind of upsetting, but at the same time, it, it makes you realize, well, that's maybe that's not what it's always what it's about. Um, so I can make twenty five hundred to thirty five hundred a month and have an absolute blast and feel like I'm I've made it. And that's that's kind of what in my eyes helped me stop playing was that's what I was supposed to do. And I had an absolute blast doing it. And you're not going to get a better experience. What is, I guess, how often do you think about it, like getting back into baseball in some form or fashion? Are you at peace with not having baseball around? No, I I definitely miss it. Um, I was never the guy that – what I did do was I followed other other guys I played with. I watched them on TV, but I'm, I was never really the guy that just watched a game to watch a game. Um, I just could never fully get into it. Um, it it's kind of like one of those just you just you got to be playing it to be in it. So 
I don't, I'm not around it enough to, to say, man, I, I really miss that. But one of these days I am. And, uh, I, I did go back and, and, and coach a little bit of college, uh, the beginning of last year. And of course, um, that was just on the side to help out our local college and then COVID hit. So we, the season stopped. So, well, going back to, you know, right after you, uh, had gone undrafted about to sign with the Astros, if you could, you know, talk to that 23 year old guy and, you know, give him a pep talk or, you know, what do you, what do you wish you could have told 23 year old you, what do you wish you would have known in retrospect before signing? Um, you know, I think I would have really fought to get behind the plate and, and try to find a, figure out a way to, to be a catcher and, uh, surpass that, that year of playing first base. Now, I don't think I hurt myself, but I think if I would have got into a system and kind of did what I had to do at Kentucky and slowly won people over and stuck my way in, I would have had maybe had a better shot. Um, you know, I think confidence wise, my junior and senior year, I, I'd figured out what that meant and how that helped you in baseball. So I understood that point. And uh, Coach Henderson or Gary Henderson, our head coach, our last two years in Kentucky, he was a, uh, a mental guru, and he really helped me understand things that I used in pro ball for the, the rest of my career. Well, Marcus, I've got a little rapid fire for you, and then I'll let you get out of here. No, you're good. This one might be a layup, but favorite indie ball ballpark? I mean, it's okay. So, <laughs> home favorite home stadium, Rockland, Rockland Boulders. Favorite away stadium, uh, Quebec City. Up in Canada. Yep. Okay. Uh, toughest SEC park to play in? Uh, LSU. That makes sense. Best pitcher you ever faced? Mm, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Um,. See, that, that's a tough one. At, at, in college, I still had uh, – after after into pro ball, I felt like – I felt like I had the hitting figured out, and I didn't feel like I was ever overpowered. And I know that sounds a little n- not humble, but that's how I played the game. But in college, I felt like I got dominated a lot. So I would say probably – David Price, Weathers, um, Drew Pomerantz from Old Miss. Um, those guys, I, I don't think I ever had a hit off of them. I think that's I, like 15 plus million in, in signing bonus. Just, just <laughs> those three dudes. I, I felt like I was a, a, I needed to quit after facing them. Favorite home run you've ever hit, and I would, I'm going to disqualify the LSU home run because we already talked about it. So favorite home run besides that. Yeah, that's a tough one because uh, that that was a good one. Um, I'm gonna say playoffs in uh, Can Am League at, in 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 Quebec. Um, they <clears throat> that was that was one of the first times that brought me back to uh, weekend SEC rowdiness. Um, the Canadians are crazy. And the especially the French ones, and they they want to beat the Americans, and they want to beat them bad. And uh, 
they're all sauced up and they're all yelling and they're packed in there. And, and they, when Rockland came to town, there was not a seat that wasn't filled in that stadium. And that was a big city. Um, and so that was probably, that was probably, uh, the next home, my favorite home run after the LSU one. It was in the playoffs up there. Do you have a nightmare bus ride story? <sighs> I've got a few of those. <clears throat> um, I'd say uh, a few of those where um, I had back spasms. Those were those were awful. Um, the the Canadian trips that I had back spasms on, I, I, that was miserable. Uh, there was one trip that I vividly remember and uh, still awful to this day and other people know what happened, but I started getting uh, sick going through the Cascade. I think it was a Cascade mountain race through New York, curvy road, um, started getting hot sweats and uh, started getting dizzy and there it went. I just started throwing up everywhere in the bus. Ended up, I couldn't stop throwing up. And uh, we stopped and ate right right after the border, or before the border, uh, at Plattsburgh, New York, before we made the cross. And I, I couldn't make it. I didn't, I didn't go. I didn't make the trip. I, I was so sick. And uh, that was probably the worst, worst bus ride I've ever had. That is an absolute nightmare. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> you're trapped on a bus with 40 players, and it's hot. You're on a crazy, windy road. You're sick. You feel like trash. That was awful. That is a tough beat. Uh, what's something people need to know about indie ball that they might not? Um, <clears throat> so I, I've, you know, I've, I don't battle this or argue this a lot, but um, I think – a lot of people need to realize how good a baseball it actually is. Um, and I played with a lot of guys that played in the big leagues in indie ball. And what you have is you have people that when they got released from minor leagues, they didn't give up They're fighters. So you get the mentally tough, crazy guys thrown into all one league. Um, and it turns out that you get really good competition, really good games, but they're good people and they're fun to play against. And I think that's one of the things that, that people, you know, they, they say, oh, it's independent ball. It's crappy. Um, you know, that's, that's where you play semi-pro. Uh, but that, that's, that's really not the case. Um, I think the difference mainly would be the velocity on the mound. Um, everything else that was related to minor leagues was better in independent baseball. I'll be honest with you. People uh, were more disciplined. They made less mistakes. They knew the game better. They played harder. Um, and that, and that's not, that's not taken away from, from anybody in the minor league system. It's just, I think the rap that the outside audience gets on it um, until you get to the big leagues. I, I really don't see a difference. And uh, I see people every year that play independent ball and then go right to Mexico and they tear it up and they face guys that played in the big leagues and, and you're all, and that's what the greatest, that's the great thing about baseball. Um, you can get one guy and another guy that may be uh, 
total, total different abilities, but they can be on the same playing field for different aspects of the game. Um, so I, I think that's one of the biggest things about independent ball that, uh, I guess a little misconception that, you know, it's, it's not good baseball. And I, I, I don't think that's true. Uh, and obviously you get some bad games and some bad players, but, uh, majority of it are players that play extremely hard that, like you said, that this may be their last game they ever play. And it's like that every game. And it's not about getting your getting your hit or getting your home run. You're trying to win, um, and it and it changes the way you think about baseball and and the game itself. Well, any ball is kind of entering this new you know this new interesting stage. We're not really sure what it's going to look like, but there, it seems like there's going to be more of it. So more people are going to be seeing what any ball is all about. Yeah, and I you know I've been out of touch a little bit on that. You know, I was really surprised that they decreased uh the rounds like they did and and cut out that many teams. Um like you said, I think it's going to um you know, I don't know, I don't follow the youth sports and if there's less people playing baseball, but um the fact of the matter is baseball is a world sport and when we play it we, we play uh, you know, our country plays against uh, the world, um, you know, football and basketball. There's not a lot of foreign guys that come into the game and baseball is not like that. So I can't imagine that it's decreasing in, in the pool of players. Um, and when you decrease that amount of teams, it's going to make these independent leagues maybe, uh, maybe like a more of a holding Holding sale? I, I don't know. It, it, you're, you're right. It could get interesting. Mm-hmm. Last one I've got for you. Who would you rather stay at Kentucky forever, Mark Stoops or Coach Cal? <laughs> uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of both of them. Um, and uh, my dad is is big big basketball guy. He played college basketball. Um, I love Coach Cal. Um my heart is is through football because I like football. So if I had to choose, that's the way I would go, but not because of either one of them, just because of the sport. And, you know, my roommates were football players, so uh, that, that's got a little special place for me. Marcus Snyder, for this was awesome. Thank you so much for coming on from Phenon of the Farm. Really enjoyed it. Kyle, I appreciate it again, and uh, let's stay in touch. Absolutely. And that's it for today's episode of From Phenom to the Farm. Huge thanks to Marcus Nidefer for stopping by, talking SEC baseball, and playing in indie ball. Uh, if you haven't yet, subscribe to From Phenom to the Farm wherever you get your podcast. Rate and leave a review if you're on Apple Podcasts. Episodes of the podcast do drop every other Tuesday. And as always, it's a great time to be subscribed to BaseballAmerica.com for all your amateur baseball and prospect news, spring training getting going, college baseball getting going, great things over at BA. We will catch you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>